The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. How many of you have heard the term, like, lean in? Like, lean into your career, lean into that degree program. If if you're in business, you've probably heard that term. Everyone's going to start leaning in, especially the last 10 years. Uh, there's a lot of books and articles that have come out all about this. Lean into innovation or lean into that promotion. Produce more. Control your outcomes. Get your email down to inbox zero. Like lean in. Um, And we can kind of laugh at that. We can poke at it. But we feel this. I think we feel this in our lives. Pressure to like expand, take more ground, uh, get that career a little bit more maybe delegate it out so we can kind of see it from the next level up. Um, Or gosh, I should really be more networked right now. I should lean into my relationships. Or I really need my five-year plan outlined. I should really have that. If I did, I'd be leaning in today. So we lean into people and we lean into our relationships. Or maybe it's like, I gotta, I gotta like start getting a family. I gotta lean into a family uh, so I can have something going on in my life. Otherwise, I'm missing out. We have this fear of missing out attached to, oh, I'm not leaning in enough. I'm not doing enough. Um, and of course, now that it's summer, we gotta lean into those vacation plans, you know, uh, so that we can get rested and refreshed so that we're back at it in the fall, leaning in again, right? So this even goes for kids today. A 2011 Pew Research survey found 64% of Americans say that parents aren't putting enough pressure on kids to do better in school, which is crazy. Now we all feel the pressure, men, women, and kids. We all feel like we have to like lean in. Um, But don't get me wrong, I do, obviously, we would all agree, it's important to do hard things and take risks and be challenged and all that. But but here's the thing, here's what I'm, here's the point. With the entire American cultural river pulling us to live our lives always leaning in, the Gospel of John gives us a vivid picture for what discipleship to Jesus looks like against the grain of our culture that's frantic. And the picture in John's Gospel is not to lean in, it's to lean back. It's to lean back into Jesus' body. Okay, and so this is what we see in John 13. It's the night of Jesus' betrayal. Many of you know the story. The night before Jesus would die for our sins, and Jesus is enjoying the Last Supper meal with his disciples, what would be the first communion meal. And after dinner, Jesus takes off his outer garment. He kneels down to wash the disciples' feet, an act reserved for slaves. And after that foot washing, the disciples are all kind of lingering around the table with Jesus, and the atmosphere of the table is important. What did the table look like? How do you picture that Last Supper table? Maybe some of us picture Da Vinci. Do you have that Da Vinci? Yes. So, so that. So, I have a question for Da Vinci. That's a 26-seat table. Why is everybody on one side? I don't know. I don't know why everybody's just on one side of the table. Um, so instead of instead of that, which is pretty, I love. I mean, it's amazing, you know, perspective and all that. But but it's more like this. So you have no chairs. It's it's couches or pillows. And it's a U-shape, much more intimate and communal. Or the next picture, some folks have guessed where they must have been sitting based on the dialogue. You have John, who's within whispering distance to Jesus. Peter, who said, hey, John, tell Jesus something for me from across the table, maybe. Um, Or this last picture, I just like imagining, maybe this is where they were. We, We don't know for sure, obviously. But we do know it's more like that 
than the long table. So low three-sided table, they would have been leaning on their left arm or elbow and eating with the right hand. I got to eat a traditional kind of ancient Near Eastern meal in Saudi Arabia when I visited on a missions trip. And we sat like that. We sat on our, on our elbow, very present to each other. Everyone's laying on the ground, eating. And uh, I wasn't expecting to feel so like exposed. I thought it'd be fun. The waiters had scimitars too, which was pretty cool. Um, but I felt very exposed. With a table and chairs, you can like hide stuff, hide your feet, hide your phone. Not, not here. There's no hiding anything. Um, very intimate. So Jesus and his 12 closest friends are sitting there reclining, and Jesus starts to explain how one of his friends would betray him. Someone right here in the room, we're about to eat the meal, and someone in this room in Maranatha is about to betray you. We're about to eat this meal. And, and, and the room gets very tense, and you thought your Thanksgiving dinner with family got awkward sometimes. The room gets very tense, they hold their breaths, And Judas sitting there, he has hatred in his heart, tired of Jesus' teachings, tired of Jesus' promises not sounding the way he wants them to sound, sick of even the way Jesus is doing his life. And Judas finally agrees on the side to get rid of Jesus. Judas is plotting to betray Jesus, and Jesus knows this. Betrayal. So one writer says this about betrayal. Betrayal is more than separation or rejection. To betray is to use the secrets of a person's personal life, thoughts confided to a friend, and to turn against that person. Or to use their confided thought or words in order to hurt or defile them, to destroy a reputation. And Judas did that to Jesus. The God we just worshiped, Judas did this to this God. And Judas knew Jesus' secrets. He knew how Jesus thought. He even knew Jesus' location. And think about this, Judas even knew that Jesus wouldn't put up a fight, and he still betrayed him. And Jesus, during this meal, Jesus is no longer able to contain his emotion. He says this in verse 21, Jesus was troubled in spirit. The Greek word there is deep anguish. He's having an emotional breakdown of sorts, deep gut anguish. And he testifies, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. It's like Jesus isn't emotionally able to keep the lid on it anymore. Have you ever been there where you can't emotionally hold on to some information when you're around people you love and you just have to, through tears, just spew it out? And the disciples are shattered by this. The verse in John 13 says they're at a loss. They're completely perplexed. Maybe not so much by what Jesus says, but the way Jesus is emotionally saying it. Possibly trembling, Jesus' voice quivering through the tears. So, so get out of your minds this glazed over Jesus. One of you will betray me. This, this sage guru paint Jesus on, on the painting. This is, this is not the emotionless holy man. This is Jesus shaken to his core. So much that he's freaking his disciples out. You know that look little kids get when they watch their dad's emotional breakdown, like, I don't even know what to do in this room. This is the disciples right now. And then finally, Judas leaves the room in this bizarre exchange. It's it's so bizarre. Jesus is like, my betrayer is the one who I'll give this dipped bread, and here you go, Judas, and it's all just slow motion for these disciples. They're not able to process. Like, what is happening? 
And Judas finally leaves the room. John, who's writing, he makes this comment. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now, why does John add, and it was night? Anybody know? Because it was night, reason number one. Uh, But even more than that, I don't think it's that simple. Even more than that, John loves to play with opposites in his gospel. If you've read John a bunch of times, you've probably seen this. He likes to play with light and darkness, night and day. He likes to play with these opposites. He does this in the beginning. Look at the beginning of John. It says, in him was life, and that life was light of all mankind. The light shines in the dark, and the darkness has not overcome it. So light, dark, day, night. John loves playing with the opposites. And so here when Jesus, who's the light of the world, is betrayed, John's like, and this is night intentionally juxtaposing the light and the darkness. Why? Because Judas was turning away from the light of the world in this moment and stepping into the deepest darkness and the coldest place anyone's ever known, which is Judas rejecting the love of Jesus in this moment. Absolute tragedy. And here's just a little chart of how Judas's embrace of darkness unfolds through John Chapter 6 starts with Judas losing his trust in Jesus. In chapter 12, it progresses. Judas actually opposes Jesus to his face. And then in 13 and 18, Judas outright rejects Jesus, betrayal unto death. And from this point on, no light can come in anymore. He's in darkness. And in darkness, you make some of the worst decisions a human being can ever make. This is the dark tragedy of rejecting the light of Jesus. Okay, but during this dark scene, John gives us another pair of opposites, another contrast to the darkness Judas is in, and it's this unnamed beloved disciple. So you have Judas, the betrayer, and you have this disciple, the beloved, another pair of opposites here. This is intentional. We don't get his name in the, in the text. Uh, he just identifies himself as, hey, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. I'm the beloved. That's how he identifies, okay? Uh, so, so Judas is plotting betrayal. There's this other disciple who's literally leaning back physically onto Jesus' chest, who's close to Christ in warm intimacy, where there's trust and comfort. In fact, the text almost makes it look like this disciple gets closest to Jesus when Jesus gets most anxious, when Jesus' Jesus' emotions start blurting out the disciple and he leans closer in and says, who will your betrayer be, Jesus? I'm here. I'm with you. Okay? It's almost like this disciple feels Jesus' heartbreak and leans back on him more. Like I said, this disciple's never named. It's just the disciple who Jesus loved. Historically, we know this to be John, the one who wrote this gospel, Uh, But I love what Ronald Rollheiser says about this. Look at this, guys. The name is left blank so that every one of us can put our names there. Each of us is to be the beloved disciple, the one identified by leaning back into Jesus in special intimacy. So you literally read John's gospel, and the author probably intends you insert your name here every time you come across this beloved My goodness, you guys. And and this is the contrast John wants to see. There's Judas rejecting Jesus' love and the beloved disciple absorbing Jesus' love. 
One disciple turning his back on Jesus, the, the other disciple literally leaning his own back onto Jesus' chest, placing his body up against Christ's body. So John's brilliant. You see how brilliant this is. Uh, and, and, and he's kind of black and white thinker. He's, remember, he likes these opposites. Here's, here's the black and white. In this dramatic scene, John's saying there are really only two kinds of disciples. One who's moving away from Jesus' love and more and more rejection, and one who's drawing nearer to Jesus' love and more and more intimacy. And John's like, which one are you right now? What's the evidence of that? This is what John is after here. Now, I, I, I want us to really meditate on this image of the beloved disciple. So again, the U-shaped table, they're reclining. Remember, no chairs, just cushions. The beloved disciple on his left shoulder, probably leaning onto Jesus' breastbone there. So when you rest your head on someone's chest, what do you hear? You, hear, you, hear the heart, you can hear the heartbeat. Your ears just above the person's heart, so you can hear their pulse rate. Think about that. The disciple who Jesus loves is leaning back on Jesus head on the breastbone, his ear just above Christ's heart, able to hear Christ's cortisol levels increasing and decreasing his heart rate and almost regulating to Jesus. So close. So, so this is the picture from John that is discipleship. John's like, this is, this is discipleship. According to John, a true disciple is someone who is leaning back on Jesus' chest hearing Jesus' heartbeat, and from that perspective, looking out into the world. You're looking out into the world from Jesus' chest. Okay, so Sandy and I have, just to illustrate personally, we have five kids, four boys and a girl, one little girl who's 10, she's the fourth born, and uh, <clears throat> Harper is her name, she loves cuddling all the time. She's very physically loving. That's got to be her love language, physical touch. So now that she's 10, she's a little bit too cool for school. So she doesn't always cuddle as much as she used to, but she still does a lot. So ever since she was little, and still to this day, if Sandy and I come in for the, like, when we kiss in the kitchen or something, we, my wife and I start kissing, and Harper, if she, she, she always, for like the first eight years of her life, like a moth to a light bulb. She would come straight into our kiss, come into the middle of our knees, and just tuck in and look out. And, and she'd see the dog, and she'd see her brothers, and she'd, just be, she'd light up from being right in that, in that little place. And so that, that right there is John's image of perfect discipleship to Jesus that we'd remain there, enfolded in that place of leaning back on Jesus, and from there you're looking around at the world's stuff. Almost as if to say, that's the only place you can see clearly from. Tuned into his heartbeat. So a disciple is one who sees the world with the sound of Jesus' heart in their ear. This is John's definition of a disciple. Remember, he wants you to put your name, insert your name here, Insert your location here. And so this is what I'm still learning from God. Me, Evan Wickham, 42 years old. You know, this is the first time I've preached here. I've led worship here a ton of times. Uh, and I'm, uh, after decades of ministry, I'm learning. So after years of leaning into ministry, leaning in, notice I use that intentionally. After decades of leaning into church and songwriting and worship leading and putting together worship sets and making sure the worship set translates 
so that the people sing, connect, and leaning in. Um, and then networking with other worship leaders, writing songs with that guy and making sure that I'm influencing over here. And, and all of that, it's not all bad. It can be good, obviously. But for me, this idea of leaning into Jesus' body, it, has been, it is a matter of life and death for me. Physically and spiritually, life and death. I have to see the world the way this disciple does, from a place where I'm close enough to hear Jesus' heartbeat the loudest, the loudest. There are many other heartbeats. There are many other voices that want to shape your heartbeat. Uh, so yes, news, news flash. Even, you know, you can lose sight of Jesus even in ministry as a pastor. Pastors can lose sight of Jesus. Surprise, surprise. I don't think that's much of a surprise. After the last five to 10 years of news headlines and pastor failures, I mean, Judas, how close was Judas to the ministry of Jesus? Jesus, Judas heard Jesus's audible voice teaching him for three years and still ended up here. Uh, so case in point, how many times have we heard stories of high-level Christian leaders who cave into their own egos and abuse people and, and for money and sex and power, all while doing really godly-looking things in pulpits. So for me, I've flirted, with this, I've flirted with this trajectory way too many times. It doesn't start with a plan. I'm going to abuse people as a minister. It starts with, where am I leaning in? I have my eyes and ears pressed up against, oh, what does my church want from me? And their needs, and what I thought San Diego needed. Oh, San Diego's a city, it needs this kind of church. It needs this kind of approach to missions. And, the, and then the music industry needs this kind of song to be written. And what I thought everyone else needed. But when you, when you walk first and foremost in intimacy with Jesus, you come to realize that, you guys, what a city actually needs are people <laughs> close enough to the heart of Jesus, close enough to hear Jesus' heart so that they can lead everyone else in the church there when the church is not there. So, so for me, this is when I'm pressed up to Jesus' chest, leaning back, and from there, from that place of leaning on Jesus' heart, I can say to my wife, from there I can say to my kids, from there I can say to my church, hey, everyone, come here, I'm hearing God, and, 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 and this is where you'll gain perspective on life. This is where there is true comfort and peace. So see, this disciple's location is intended to tell, some, tell us something about him. He's reclining near Jesus' chest, and from there he's able to see everything clearly. So, so finally, as we kind of round the last corner of this teaching, there's something even bigger going on here in this story. I really want us to see this part. So remember, according to the Gospel of John, John starts his Gospel showing us where Jesus has always been located. Jesus is located so Jesus' location is exactly the same as, as John's location in relation to Jesus. Here's, here's what I mean. Look at John 1, verse 18. Now, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So that underlined part is what I want us to focus on. Uh, this is actually best captured, I think, in the Old King James. I'm, I'm, I don't usually go to Old King James. Uh, no, no problem with it. I, this, I'm using NIV for this teaching, but the Old King James nails this word. So how many of you have that bad boy in your laps right now? Yes, Old King James. <laughs> I like that. So, uh, so here it is in, in, in the King James. Look at this. 
No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. That's Jesus' location. In the bosom of the Father. Words we don't normally use, right? Uh, from there, he's declared the Father. And look at, look at, same word in John 13. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, same Greek word there, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So it's the same word in both texts. Translated bosom, now don't think male or female body parts, obviously. Think, this is literally bosom, the fold of the garment. The fold of the garment. So picture a kid carrying Legos. He doesn't have enough hands to carry the Legos, so he uses his shirt to like wrap up a bunch of Legos and take him to the bedroom. That is, that is the fold of the garment. That's what the word bosom means, meaning the beloved disciple is enfolded in Jesus' garment, covered, intimate with Jesus, exactly like Jesus is with the Father. And as followers of Jesus, listen, Jesus is in the fold of the Father, and John's in the fold of Jesus. It's the same position. So as followers of Jesus, we're called to make Jesus known. You know what the implications of this are? Jesus being that close to the Father is exactly what made the Father known to the world. So Maranatha Chapel, this is literally, so knowing God, making God known, it's literally the first button you can click on your website. I checked. You go on maranathachapel.org and the first thing upper left is know God. And you click it and Daniel's like, hi, thanks for clicking that button, you know. Know God, it's right there at the top of your value chain. Uh, so, so the way we say it at our church, Park Hill, we were created first and foremost to be with Jesus. That's the beginning and end of discipleship. And from being with Jesus, Jesus' favorite word for this, abide. From that place, from resting our head over Jesus' own heartbeat, we get the perspective and power to know God, and, and that makes God knowable to San Diego. Your intimacy with Jesus, even more than like the strategies you think of and the five-year plan you articulate, your being intimate with God is what makes God knowable to your neighbors and to your workspaces. Being close enough to Jesus to make him known. Intimacy with Jesus reveals God to the world. Okay, so maybe you're like, this is all beautiful. That was a beautiful walk through John 13, um, but I'm a practical person. Maybe you're, you're thinking, so what does this look like? What does it mean to lean back on Jesus' chest? Um, or maybe one way of asking that, what does leaning back require? What does leaning back require of me? And so three things for now, just kind of pastoral, uh, pastoral kind, of, kind of takes here, and then we'll come to the bread and cup. Leaning back on Jesus it requires, at minimum, number one, you have to show up. You have to show up. Here's how Rollheiser says it. There's no bad way to pray, and there's no single starting point for prayer. All the great spiritual masters offer only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer, and you have to show up regularly. You have to. That is leaning back in its most broken down essence, showing up to pray. So Sandy and I are in our sixth year of planting this church, and it's a beautiful community there in Point Loma. And one of the main things we've learned uh, in six years, 
is that Christians kind of, I hate to say it, Christians kind of have this love-hate relationship with prayer, right? Like we say it's the most important thing in the world while simultaneously never getting around to doing it. It's, it's just the way Christians were weird like that. The reality, but the reality is, and we find this to be true, if Christians don't take everything else off the table to pray, then Christians won't pray. That's just how we roll. Um, I think it's because everything about prayer is everything the enemy and our own flesh kicks against. Prayer has everything that the enemy and our flesh kick against inside of it. And, and that's because prayer, is, prayer contains everything we need to, to, to lean back and, and experience Jesus' heartbeat. Prayer has it all. Um, so Maranatha, uh, show up to pray. pray. Prayer rooms, prayer groups, prayer meetings, growth groups, I'm sure they pray. Prayer and one-on-one, there's no bad way. You can pray sitting down, standing up, on your knees, out loud, to music, in silence. You can pray on the, you know, in the beach, in your bed at 3 a.m., when anxiety wakes you up over that thing at 2.35, pray. You can pray. It's, there's no bad way. To put it bluntly, though, uh, you have to show up. You have to show up consistently for this. Uh, if you are not showing up regularly to pray, you are not leaning back on Jesus. I'll put it that bluntly. Um, so leaning back also requires, at minimum, you show up to pray. Number two, you, we must put away distraction. <laughs> we Distractions are everywhere, and we have to be intentional and aggressive with eliminating distractions. So, again, very practical. I told you I'm ending just practically. Um, so imagine John, the beloved disciple, U-shaped table, again, cushions, and John's there. He kind of is leaning on Jesus, and then vroom, vroom, the phone, and then he just kind of is pretending. He's pretending it's not happening. He's just kind of grabbing the, the, the bitter herbs, and vroom, vroom. And, and then Jesus, like, you're gonna, Jesus, Jesus is like, you're going to get that because even now I'm distracted. Like, um, so one thing, just a family, family to family tip, one thing my, um, our family tries to practice once in a while is the let's just not know. Let's just not know. It's a fun saying to throw out in the room. So it's magical. So you know when you get into that conversation, you have friends over and maybe you're in a growth group meeting or whatever, and suddenly someone says something random that needs to be like fact-checked, and then someone grabs their phone and tries to Google it, and then they get distracted for five minutes, and other people are like fact-checking their fact, and then suddenly everyone's on their phones, and the moment's gone. How about instead, just be like, hey, let's just not know. Let's just not know. It's actually magical. Someone's like, when's that Marvel movie coming out? You're like, hey, let's just not know. Let's guess. And they just kind of laugh about when, and, or like, when's, what's that actor's name? Let's just not know. Let's not know what that actor's name is. And stay eye contact. Let's just not know. Or, uh, you know, Labradoodles shouldn't even exist, should they? Labradoodles are not supposed to exist as beings. They've they've been made by humans. Isn't that true? I don't know. Let's Google it. No. Let's just not know. Let's just guess. And and, uh, so so it's magical. Because, it's funny, but this is real. The reality of being Jesus' disciples in 2023, while the tech industry has made our lives efficient, It's also conspired against depth. We've become so attentive to so many trivial things so that we aren't attentive to people and the most meaningful things we say we value. Particularly, we're not attentive to what's actually going on inside of me right now. How am I feeling? How are you doing today? I'm actually going to give you the real answer because I've been paying attention to my soul. 
That takes readiness. It takes a life that's not distracted. So leaning back into Jesus in order to lean back on people and not be distracted from the body of Christ, it requires showing up through prayer and it requires an aggressive plan to eliminate distractions. And then finally, and this one is really hard for me, uh, but I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's powerful. You need, to really, you need to release control of your relationship with God back to God. Here's what that means. In a church this size, like Maranatha Chapel, just mega church in San Diego, decades and decades of faithfulness and influence for the kingdom in our city with a great reputation. Uh, in a church this size, in a city like San Diego, there's probably many of you here who know how to manage. You're managers. Manage businesses, numbers, you manage code, you even manage medicine or manage budgets, even whole companies and you can make them fit. You're really good at making them fit your own desires and goals, your managers. And setting goals is great, obviously. We need, God is a God of order, not of chaos, so management is kingdom stuff. But listen, often we are tempted, I think we're tempted to treat God in the same way. We want to manage, we want to order our own spiritual growth and set benchmarks for God and control the outcomes, we're like, hey, by this time next year, I should have this much more spiritual fruit in my life. I should be mentoring this many people, and I should be getting discipled by two people, uh, and, or, or else I'll be discouraged. Does anyone resonate with that? We want to set these spiritual benchmarks into the future. We try to use God to produce our own transformation, or try to manipulate God to bring about the changes I think I need in my own life when what I really need is to release control of my relationship with God back to God. Like God, even, even my spiritual growth is yours. Even the results of me walking with you, even how I end up looking more or less godly next year, even that belongs to God. My spiritual fruit, my maturity, even that's yours, Jesus. It's not mine to manipulate. God, also, but don't get me wrong, I will show up for prayer. I will put away distractions. I'll plant the seeds of your word in my soul. I'll water those seeds with basic Christian practice, like showing up for worship and all of that, and, and giving generously to my church and going to growth group. I'll show up for that stuff. But God, you are the one who grows me. God grows me. The results of me are his. Uh, it's, he controls my spiritual journey, not me. You got, it's, it's so, we get in these mind games. I get in this mind game where I actually think that I am controlling the fruit that comes out of my life when it's the fruit of the Spirit. And so this is essential to being a disciple. You and I must learn. We, we have to learn to release control of our relationship with God to God. What does that take? Very practically, what does that take? I think it takes one of the long-lost forms of prayer in our noisy, fast-paced Christian culture. I think it takes silence. Releasing control of my relationship to God, my, releasing control of my, my spiritual life back to God, even the outcomes of my life, it takes silence. 
a rhythm of silence in my life. I'm continuing to learn this personally. The only way to truly stop trying to control my life in God is through the practice of silence and solitude with the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus did. Jesus needed to withdraw to the solitary places time and time again. Ruth Barton talks about it like this. Oof, this gets me. Without the regular experience of being received and loved by God in solitude and silence, we're vulnerable to a kind of leadership that's driven by profound emptiness that we're seeking to fill through performance and achievement. Silence with the Spirit of God is survival for me. It's not just like, oh, I like to get around to it. It is life or death in the Spirit for me. Otherwise, I'm controlling my outcomes. I'm listening to other voices tell me what makes me matter. And at that point, I'm on the wrong trajectory. No wonder leaders fall. Maybe this is why Judas wanted Jesus gone. Because Judas was following a Jesus he couldn't control. Judas was trying to control Jesus. Maybe Judas was driven by that profound emptiness. We should give more to the poor. We should, we should be more charity-oriented. And when he started to realize Jesus wouldn't bend to Judas's will, Judas decided to get rid of Jesus. But the enduring picture of discipleship is leaning back onto Jesus, showing up in regular prayer without distraction, and releasing control of whatever happens back to Jesus. I would encourage you, church family, uh, in that. Uh, release control of whatever happens in your life back to the God who created you. Can you imagine if we really became churches that lived this? Like Maranatha here, Park Hill and Liberty Station, and, and if, we, if we became churches in San Diego who listened to Christ's heartbeat and then lean back on each other, and look out at the world. We actually gain our perspective and our opinions from Jesus' heartbeat all the time and look out at the world with that level of peace and patience. Can you imagine what kind of church our city would see? I think think San Diego would see what pure love looks like beyond ideologies, Beyond the typical, you know, liberal, conservative talking points all over the place that make everyone mad all the time. Beyond the typical noise and news headlines. Beyond our opinions and beyond other people's opinions of us. And not just our city needs to see this kind of church, but I think the church needs to see this kind of church. A vision of self-sacrifice beyond our own comforts, beyond our, our perceived personal freedoms. When I think of a church that's leaning on each other, self-sacrifice, sacrificially giving up our rights for each other and listening to Christ's heartbeat the night before he gave up all his rights through prayer and looking out at the world from there, I think of a community that's strong enough to keep our hearts soft when everything in the next year is gonna try to make our hearts hard. No gossip, just gentle praise in every room toward everyone outside every room cheering on other people's gifts in a culture driven by jealous noise. Increased capacity to forgive one another despite our very real wounds. So, that's all I got. I'm gonna lead us in communion in a few moments. 
but in a time of deep unrest and, and, and really widespread cultural anxiety and church division and sexual confusion, in a time when opinions are flying everywhere, I firmly believe, as the Gospel of John declares, the only way Jesus followers will gain true perspective on what's going on in the world and then have the kingdom capacity to do something about it, it will not come from listening to the right political voices or reading the right news feeds. It will come as we live from the place of leaning back on Jesus' body as a church. That's where it will come from. So Heavenly Father, I pray that this church family would uh, lean back. They'd insert their name here in the beloved disciples' name. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, give us more and more of an ear for Christ's heartbeat and Christ's voice. Jesus, you said, my sheep know my voice. So as we listen to your heartbeat, may we know the sound of your voice, which means we'll know what isn't your voice. Thank you that you give us that. You give us the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Because through the Spirit, we're connected to the heart of Christ. So Holy Spirit, would you come now as we get ready for communion and, uh, yeah, and just give us fresh, fresh hearts, a fresh filling of your Spirit. Show us what this means for us, whether it's a recommitment to prayer or just repentance. Show us, God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.